this Advent season, we are doing a series in the book of First Colossians. And so if you have your Bible with you, you can open up, not First Colossians, Col- sorry, uh, I've been to seminary, okay, um, Colossians 1, the, Colossians, the, the name and the one got mixed up in my head. We are in, we're doing a series in Colossians 1, all right doing a series in uh, Colossians chapter 1, so I'll give you a moment to turn there if you uh, need to, or if you, if you have your Bible with you. Uh, if you can't find it or you don't have a Bible with you, that's all right, because we'll have the words, the text on the screens next to me so you can follow along there. Today we're going to be in Colossians 1, starting in uh, verse 15. Okay, we're all about ready. All there, we're going to read, continuing in this series for Christmas this year, looking at Colossians chapter 1 and starting in verse 15. In Colossians 1.15, it says, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So here we have this, one of the, probably the most famous passage in all of the book of Colossians, and certainly the the, the keystone passage of Colossians chapter 1. This hymn here that Paul shares uh, about the, the centrality and the supremacy of Jesus Christ over all things. That is what this, uh, this passage is about here, just in big terms. That's what this passage is about that we just read. The supremacy and the lordship of Christ over all of creation. Now, we have that in the no, so we have that knowledge that that's what this passage is about. But then Paul says some things that, you know, is some phrases here and there that might be a little confusing, or if we're reading it closely, you might think, huh, doesn't that kind of create an issue? Because Paul is talking about uh, the supremacy of Christ over all things, but then what does it mean when he says, firstborn over all creation, right? Because clearly Paul is saying that Jesus is God. He says that, uh, that, that all the fullness of God, he says all the fullness, right? So he's not saying just like one part or he's kind of like God, but he says all the fullness of God dwells in him. He says that he was before all things, Okay, he says that he created all things. So you, you must be God in order to create all things and so on. But then he also says that he is the first, firstborn over all creation. That might seem kind of contradictory, right? To say that he is God, but then that he is a, a firstborn because if he, is a, if, he, if he was created himself, then he is not fully God. Here's what Paul means by that. Whenever Paul means, whenever he says that he is the firstborn over all creation... 
he doesn't mean it in the sense as, uh, uh, as though Jesus was actually created or actually born, because Jesus uh, has, has always preexisted the creation along with the Father and Holy Spirit. So he doesn't mean firstborn in the sense that we have a firstborn, which is that, you know, my, my firstborn, there was a period where she did not exist, and then there was a period where she did exist, and she does exist now, right? Because she was the firstborn. He doesn't mean firstborn in that sense. What he means is, is more in the cultural sense that uh, a firstborn child meant during this time. Because to be the firstborn during this time doesn't just mean that you were the first out of the womb, but it came with um, uh, spiritual and cultural significance for the family and community. He was speaking in the sense of the role that the firstborn child, the firstborn son, and every family during this time played, this role uh, that scholars call the, the primogenitor, the primogenitor role. What it meant is that the firstborn had a role uh, in that they carried a special authority, and they, spare, they carried a special role for the family in that their authority and their role in the family would one day be equal with that of the father or the patriarch over the family, and that one day everything would belong to them and that they would then be the patriarch over the family, right? So that they would be the supreme, right? They would be the authority over the family. So once again, this is what Paul is driving at in this passage here. Even when he says the firstborn overall creation, once again, referring to that primogenitor role that the firstborn would play, he was saying that in a similar sense, Jesus is the authority with the Father over all of creation. It is all his. It all belongs to him. It's all his inheritance. That's what Paul's saying. So the supremacy and the lordship of Jesus Christ overall, that's what he's saying. But then he says something else interesting. He, he goes on a few verses later, and he says, the firstborn from the dead. What is he getting at there? Well, obviously, what he's referring to, if you're familiar with the gospel story, if you're familiar with Christianity, what he's referring to is Jesus' resurrection. He's referring to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And to say that he is the firstborn from the dead, what he means that, there is that he is, he is the first in uh, in the family of those who will be among the resurrected. That is what he means there. He is, he is the firstborn from the dead in the sense that Jesus' resurrection is a prefiguring. It is the first of the kind of resurrection and new creation that we can all look forward to ourselves. So here's this interesting thing whenever we pull this all together. We have Jesus, who is the fullness of God, He's the firstborn over all creation. All of it belongs to him. It's his inheritance. Uh, he created all things that's for him. But he was a God who became flesh in order that he may die and then rise from the grave. What that means, whenever we pull this all together, that, that he was God, came down in flesh so that, so that the, the, the immortal, right, unbreakable God might become mortal and breakable, Right, the, the, the God who could not be touched became touchable. He became vulnerable. But he became vulnerable in order that he might be able to bleed, he might be able to die. And then, being, and then taking, uh, taking on death, overcoming death in his resurrection so that he might accomplish this. All of it that Paul is driving towards. Reconciling everything to himself. You see, what I'm getting at here, what the, I think uh, the relevance of this passage is for us today is that Christmas, the incarnation, uh, the incarnation is the theological term that we use for, uh, for what it means whenever God, Jesus, uh, the Son of God, took on flesh, right, became man. 
the incarnation, if you really understand what it's about, if you really understand what Paul is saying here and, and, and hold it together with the fact that Jesus became flesh, that God became flesh, that he might die, overcome sin and death for us, then it will change everything in your life. That's the significance of this passage for us, and, I, and that's what I want us to see today as we walk through this, how the incarnation or how Christmas changes everything. We're going to look at how Christmas changes three things today. We're going to look at how Christmas brings new order to life, Christmas brings new meaning to life, and Christmas brings new joy to life. And we're going to see those through Paul's hymn here in Colossians chapter 1. So as I said before, the big point that Paul has here for us is that Jesus is Lord over everything. He is Lord over all. He is the king over all kings. He is the Lord over all lords, as we, as we say uh, in, in church from time to time. He is the ruler over all things. Like I said, that's what Paul means where he says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Everything was created by him. And Paul goes on to say, whether it's heaven or on earth, whether it's visible, invisible. And then he says, all things, have, all things have been created through him and for him. So it's not as though he created the world. He created the heavens and the earth. He created all those other things that, that Paul talks about there, right? Like, right, Rulers and thrones, dominions, you know, nations. And it said, now it's yours, right? Have at it. This is yours. Now I made it for you. He created all things and he created them for himself so that they might remain under his ownership and under his rule. He is Lord over all. He is Lord over all. And so what does that mean for our life if we're going to become people who say that we follow Christ? What does that mean for us if we're going to call ourselves Christians or disciples of Jesus Christ? Who, as Paul describes here, is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the Creator over all, and the Creator who created all things, and all things are for Him. What does that mean for our life? Well, it means this: it means that if He is going to come into your life, if Jesus is going to come into your life, if you're going to uh, follow Him as your Lord and as your Savior, then what that means is that He is going to change everything in your life. He's going to change everything in your life. Everything that was uh, in your life before is going to be reordered now underneath his rulership. Here's our first big point. The first big point is the title of this section. Christmas brings a new order to your life. Christmas brings a new order to your life. You see, before Christ, you had your life and all of your values, all of your dreams and goals in a, in a certain hierarchy, Right, think all, all the values that you hold as, as a hierarchy where you've got your ultimate highest one at the top. This is your value above all values or your, your goal above all goals, that which is most important to you. You've got that at the top, and that one used to define everything else, right? So let's say that your highest value in life is uh, your family, right? And that, that's a good one. That's a great value to have. Your highest value in life was your family. And so whenever everything else appeared or, or, or came into your life, any other opportunities, challenges, whatever else, those opportunities or those values, those challenges were evaluated in the light of what was your ultimate, right? So an opportunity for perhaps a new job comes into your life. Now, you might be excited about it. You might think, this is, a good, is this a good opportunity or a bad opportunity? What's going to be your question? How good is it for what is my highest one? My family. 
How good is it for my family? And so, because, so you've got your hierarchy of values and opportunities, and so what's going to determine where that opportunity for a new job or maybe to purchase a new vehicle, move into a different neighborhood, uh, whatever else it might be, get another haircut, I don't know, right? But whatever it is, it's going to find its place in that hierarchy, whether it's near the top or whether it's near the bottom, right? Pushed, completely pushed out of it, determined by what is at the top, right? How important is it? How does it help or support? How does it detract from in relation to what is at the top, what is the supreme, the ultimate? If Jesus is Lord over all, if he's the creator over, creator over all and it is all for him, if he is sovereign and this sovereign Lord enters your life, well, then guess what? Now he takes that spot. Now he takes that spot at the top of your value hierarchy, at the top of your hierarchy of what, of what you love, of what you desire, of what you adore. He sits at the top now, and what that means is, is that if he's going to sit at the top now, everything that used to be beneath it is going to start to be reordered in relationship to him. Some things that maybe used to be quite near the top are going to have to move down. Some things which used to be near the bottom are going to have to move up, and there's going to have to be some shifting and moving around. But whenever Jesus comes into your life, he establishes the order, and so everything is then reordered beneath him. Now, sometimes there's some obstacles to us doing this in our life. There's obstacles to us having our lives reordered beneath the lordship of Jesus Christ. And do you know what that obstacle is? I'll tell you this. That obstacle is not, because so often we blame it on things that are not really the problem. That obstacle is not your schedule. That obstacle is not how much income you make in a year. That obstacle is not your natural gifts and talents or the things that you are, are, are not so good at, right? The obstacle to having your life reordered underneath Jesus Christ and then following him and, and, and living like him as you ought to, the obstacle to that happening is those loves that we used to hold on to, those values that we used to hold on to that are now competing to hold their top spot with Jesus Christ. The problem is not your schedule. The problem is not that you do not have enough time in the day to devote a portion of it to prayer, scripture, the word. The problem is not that your week to week is so busy that you don't have time for a D group or whatever else it might be whenever we, we blame, oh, we're just so busy, right? We've got a lot on our plate and so on. That's not the problem. It's a problem of priorities. It's a problem of values and that there are there is something operating here if you're listening to the podcast, <laughs> operating in your heart. There's something operating in your heart, a, a, former, a former value that you used to love and, and, and put all of your hope in, that you used to put all your stock in life in, right? That used to be the number one, and it's still wanting to be the number one, and it's fighting for that top spot. Or maybe you're trying to hold Jesus there plus a couple other things in the top. And listen, friends, if you're going to try to hold something else in your life, anything else, no matter how good you think it is, you know, family or, or your job or anything else, if you're going to try to hold it in that top spot along with Christ, he cannot be your Lord. Because if Jesus will be your Lord, he will sit in that, in that spot of ultimate authority in the hierarchy of your life, and he will sit there alone. And then as you submit to him at the top of that hierarchy, he will then determine the order of everything else. Think of it this way. It's sort of like, imagine that I had, imagine that I had some sort of terminal illness. 
I had, I had a disease that was going to cost me my life or at least a, a very uh, significant quality, a significant portion of the quality of my life. And so I'm going to the doctor to get some news about my illness, what, I, what I'm facing. And you come along with me for some emotional support. I've got this illness. I've got this problem that is, that is destroying my life or it might eventually take my life. We go to the doctor and see the doctor. And the doctor sits down with us and says, I've got great news for you. There is a cure that will take this illness away. You will have your quality of life back. Your life will be saved. You, you can take this cure. But if you're going to take the cure, you're going to have to give up Chick-fil-A for life. And I said, forget that, right? I said, I don't want that medicine. Give up Chick-fil-A for life? Are you kidding me? Now, I've got to be honest. If that, if that was the choice put before me, it would be difficult because I love Chick-fil-A, right? But you would turn to me and say, what are you thinking? Are you crazy? Take the medicine. Give up the Chick-fil-A. Take the medicine, right? Or whatever else it might be, chocolate. I love chocolate too, or ice cream. Like, give those things up. Take the medicine and have your life saved. Or, or, or this mess that you're in, let it uh, get you out of it. And it's the same thing whenever we hear that Christ can be our Lord and Savior, that Christ can be that Lord which comes into your life. He sits at the top of the hierarchy, and now he reorders everything else as it is supposed to be, bringing order where there was once chaos, right? cleaning up where there was once mess, saving your life from sin and death. But oh, there's just some other things that we're not so sure if we want to let, let loose of, right? if we, if we want to let go of. Christmas doesn't necessarily mean forsaking all that is good, but it does mean a reordering of what is good. So whatever used to sit in that top spot, assuming that it was not something outright perverse or evil, right, or sinful, whatever was sitting in that top spot before, or whatever is in your life right now that is trying to fight and wrestle for that top spot where Jesus is, you know, I'm willing to bet nine times out of ten, it's not bad. In fact, it's usually something that's probably really good. Like I said before, your family, your job, whatever else it might be. Being a Christian doesn't mean that you, that you just forsake those things, obviously. It doesn't mean that you forsake them. It doesn't mean that you quit caring about them. But what it means is now, is that now their importance is reordered in relationship to Jesus' importance in your life. What you do in those different areas, the the directions that you choose for your, for your career, for your job, the way that you order your household and your family, the, the kind of marriage that you're trying to design and, and build for yourself with your spouse. What determines all of those things now is Jesus, who sits there at the top. So it doesn't mean a forsaking of all that is good, but it does mean a reordering of all that is good in relation to Christ your Lord. So what does this mean for your everyday life? It means this. It means bring some order into your life by obeying Jesus as your Lord. I think Paul says an interesting phrase here that actually has a lot of practical relevance to our lives. Let me ask you this. Uh, is your life kind of falling apart? Some of us in here, if we're being honest, you're like, I feel like it. Right? There's times where we all go through, through uh, seasons where we feel like everything is falling apart. Do you feel like your life is falling apart, or do you feel like maybe it's not so, not so dramatic as it's falling apart, but it's just a mess? You know, even if you're doing fairly well in life, 
there's no major crises and all. You just still feel like, I'm just kind of moving from day to day, moment to moment. I'm living really reactionary, but it's definitely not as good as it could be. It's still, it's still a little bit of a mess. It's not quite the order that it could be. Paul gives us the solution here. Listen to what Paul says in verse 17. He says, speaking of Jesus, he is before all things, and by him all things hold together. You see, what we live in, in this world and in this, this universe, is something that the ancients used to call a cosmos. The, the ancients, the, the Greek philosophers, used to call our world and the heavens that we live in a cosmos. Why did they call it that? It wasn't just the, it wasn't just the Greek word for world or heavens, right? It, it meant more than that. It carried a lot more nuance than that. But here's why they called it that and the nuance that came along with it. Because whenever they looked at our world and they looked at humanity and the animal life, and even the climate, the weather, everything. And they looked up at the heavens, and they saw the stars, they saw the sun and the moon, how everything had its place, everything had its seasons, everything had its motions. They looked around, and they saw an incredible amount of design and order to the world. They saw that, that this, is, this is beautifully designed. Everything has its place. Everything is where it ought to be, and it does what it ought to do right? The, the dog does what a dog ought to do, right? The deer does what a deer ought to do. The sun does what it ought to do in the earth as well. They, and that's what they meant when they called the world a cosmos. It is this beautiful, ordered thing. Why is it so ordered? Why is there this fabric of, of design and beauty to it where everything has its place and does what it ought to? Paul tells us. He says, because he who created all things holds them all together, he holds them all together. The reason that the cosmos is a cosmos is because there's a Jesus who holds it all together. Now look at your life. Look at your mind, your heart, your home, whatever it might be. And it doesn't look so much like a cosmos, you might say to yourself. It looks a little bit more messy. What do you need? You need the Lord of the cosmos to come into your life and begin to hold all things together. You see, to the degree that you obey Jesus more and more in your life, to the degree that you submit to him in greater and greater measure, to that degree, he will begin to hold things in your life together more and more, and he will change where what was once chaos and mess in your life into beauty and order. You see, following Jesus Christ is, means a lot more than just the spiritual. It means a lot more than just reading your Bible, doing your prayer time, and so on, although that is, a, that, is, that is at the core, but it has very real relevance and practical application to your life, to your home, to your career, and so on. He who holds all things together can make things start to hold together a little bit better in your life if you'll submit to him in greater and greater degree. So, Christmas brings new order to life. It also brings new meaning. If you think about it, Christmas is the ultimate adventure story. What's the archetype of every adventure story? Or what's the archetype for the origin of every adventure story? Consider some of the best. I know you guys giggle at me, but uh, think of Lord of the Rings. Whenever, what is it that, that, that kicks off the adventure? Well, whether you're talking about Bilbo, whether you're talking about Frodo, right? There is a character who is living in quiet, uh, in calm, in security and comfort, 
who by a series of events is whisked away into a big grand adventure, right? Whether it's Bilbo and all these dwarves coming in, knocking at his door, Frodo and Gandalf coming to his door, but they're whisked away, they're taken away in this big grand adventure. Similarly, in another one of my favorites, Star Wars, you have the character of Luke Skywalker, who is living on Tatooine in relative safety, security, and so on, right? He's living in relative comfort until, through meeting these droids, right, uh, becomes whisked away in this big, grand adventure. So if you think about it, you know, Christmas so often to us means nostalgia. It means coziness, right? It means all, 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 these, all these sweet, comfortable uh, sentiments. But if you think about it, Christmas is the ultimate adventure story because we have Jesus, the Son of God, who lived in perfect security. He lived in perfect comfort, calm, and harmony, along with the Trinity, the Father and the Holy Spirit in heaven. There he lived in heaven. There he existed in this perfect love, harmony, comfort, and so on, until he was called by God at the right time to come down, to leave that comfort and security, to come down to this earth in the form of a person, right? As I said before, to take on flesh and to live on this world right? He was called off on this grand adventure. So though so often Christmas for us means nostalgia, coziness, comfort. For Christ, Christmas meant danger. It meant rejection. It meant leaving the safety and the security of heaven. And if you will begin to follow Christ, if he becomes your Lord and he sits at the top of that hierarchy, then guess what? He's going to bring new meaning to your life. He's going to bring some adventure. So the second big point is that Christmas brings new meaning to your life. Because a Christian is someone who looks at what Jesus did for them and says that they too want a life like that. If Christ becomes your Lord, then you look at what he did in the gospel. You look at what he did at Christmas. You look at what he did with his life as he answered the call of the Father to leave heaven, come to earth, and then he answered the call of the Father to obey the Father throughout his life. In all the different places that that led him, throughout Judea, Samaria, Galilee, uh, often to other regions as well, in confrontations with the uh, religious and civic elites, in confrontations with demons, right, in debates, and also in, in, uh, in, in moments of healings and so on. But Jesus, in answering the call of the Father on his life, lived out this great adventure. And if you begin to follow him, if he becomes your Lord and you his disciple, well, then one of the signs that you really are following him is that you're going to look at his life and say, you know what, I want my life to be like that as well. It doesn't mean you're going to do the exact same things as him, but what it does mean is that you're no longer going to live your life just directed by whatever you think. You're no longer going to live by your own calling, but you're going to live by the calling of the Father. And whatever kind of adventure that means for you, whatever the call of the Father means that there's going to be sacrifice on your part. Whatever the call of the Father means you stepping outside of your comfort zone into danger or into risk, into something that, you know what, in the big scheme of things may not be that risky, but it's just a little scary to you. Stepping out of your comfort zone into the realm of the awkward. <laughs> How often are we held back from following God because of awkwardness, right? But stepping out into the adventure that he has for you, whether that be in your family, in your workplace, in your school, but being a Christian means being brought into Jesus' adventure. So what this means for your life is that you need to answer the call 
of adventure in Christmas. Answer the call of adventure in Christmas. You remember that Jesus once told his disciples that those who cling on to their lives, who hold it very tightly, who do not want God to start to direct their lives for them, who want to live by their own calling. He said that those who cling to their lives, those who try to save their lives will lose it. But those who give up their lives for me will save it. Right? This is what he was talking about. How so often we, we, we don't follow God's calling. We hold back. We try to follow our own direction. We, try to, we, we want to stay in our comfort zones. We want to stay on the paths that we had charted out for us or that maybe our parents had laid out before us or, or whoever else. And so we hold back from, from following Christ with all of our life, from letting go of what was our dreams, maybe, from letting go of what we thought was the path for our life, from letting go of the path that was giving to us and accepting what is the call of God the Father on us. Are you willing to let go of your life to accept his calling on you? If you do, though that might be scary, that might be difficult, though it might mean you making some changes in your life, setting on a new direction, though it might mean, like I said before, taking some steps that seem maybe risky to you, maybe it means developing character traits and skills that you never really thought you had before in order to follow God's calling. But friends, if you do, if you're willing to let go of control in your life, and to accept God's call, then here's what you're going to find. Number one, you're going to find an incredible new sense of purpose. You're going to find an incredible new sense of purpose as you begin to live out what God had determined for you. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, we have one of the most famous passages of the New Testament. Whenever Paul says, uh, but, but God, who is rich in mercy, right? He says that, and then he says in Ephesians 2, 8, for we are saved by grace through faith. And this is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one may boast. And then what does he say in verse 10 after that? Why are we saved? He says in verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand. You see, God had a des- has a design for your life. As long as you are living beneath the control of idols, whatever you used to sit at the top of your hierarchy, and as long as you live clinging on to control of your own life, then what are you doing? You're living according to some other kind of design. But whenever you follow Christ, you live under his lordship and you accept the call of God, then you start to do what you were always designed to do. And do you know how satisfying that can be? Have you ever experienced that before, friends? Have you ever experienced a moment like that before where, where you knew Maybe it wasn't in your job. Maybe it was in your relationships, in your marriage, or whenever you became a parent, and you just knew, this is something that I was meant to do. Have you ever stepped into something like that before? It is an incredible gift. It is beautiful. It fills you with a sense of purpose that's going to keep you going on. Like I said, whether that's in your relationships, in your career, in your church, uh, in, in your church service, that's gonna, that is something that's going to keep you going on even whenever times get difficult even whenever that initial sense of satisfaction kind of starts to wear away and now it's just the day-to-day, right? If you have that purpose, then it will fuel you to continue. And even greater than that, as God has you following the calling and those good works which he prepared beforehand and you experience that sense of purpose, he is also transforming you. He is also working inside of you to make you as you follow him, as you obey his calling, 
changing you into someone who looks more and more like Jesus Christ. And so look at the beautiful nature of what God has done and planned for your life. As you follow him and submit to him, you obey his law, you obey his calling on your life. He is turning you into who you were always meant to be and at the same time turning you into someone who looks more like Jesus. Who were you always meant to be? What is God's plan for your life? That you might be someone who is, who is, who is purely and uniquely and authentically you and who is also like Jesus. That's what God has for your life. One of my favorite writers, Oz Guinness, said this. He said, calling is not only a matter of being and doing what we are, but also of becoming what we are not yet, but are called by God to be. This is the invitation that is inherent in Christmas. Christmas brings new meaning to your life, so accept God's calling and the, the calling to adventure in Christmas. Like I said, the adventure will require sacrifice. Oftentimes, whenever God calls us to do something, which is one of those good works which he prepared beforehand, whenever God calls us to do something which might be one of the greatest callings that he has for you, it's going to be the most difficult. I found in my life that oftentimes those which are the best of opportunities and, and the best of projects or, or things that we have to do are most often the diff, most difficult. They're not the easiest. They're sometimes the most uncomfortable. And so if you're going to step into those things, it's going to require some sacrifice from you. So whenever sacrifice is expected of you, stepping out of your comfort zone to accept the call of adventure that God has, how are you going to do it? What is going to enable you in those moments that you have the chance? Am I going to cross this line? Am I going to step outside my comfort zone? Am I going to follow God's calling? What's going to enable you to do that whenever it requires sacrifice of you? What enabled Christ? Jesus was able to make the ultimate sacrifice of himself whenever he not only left heaven to come down to earth, but then also went to the cross, giving up not just his time, not just his energy, not just you know, uh, what he could do with himself, but giving up his whole life, making the ultimate sacrifice on the cross. Not just giving up his life, but giving up his life in an incredibly difficult way in an incredibly brutal way, in an incredibly shameful manner, what enabled him to give up and to uh, commit that kind of a sacrifice? We learn in Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews 12, 2, it says this, For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What enabled Jesus Christ to endure the cross? What gave him the power to go through with it? As, he, as the writer says there, to despise the shame, in other words, to, to see the shame and the difficulty and what was going to be required of him, to see all those things and for them to be like nothing to him. What did, how did he do it? For the joy. For the joy that was set before him. So in other words, joy is what enabled Jesus Christ to endure the, the sacrifice that God had laid out for him. So likewise, we can endure any loss or shame. We can endure any kind of sacrifice. We can endure and answer the call whenever God lays it before us because we have joy as well. We have joy in Christ. 
Why do we have joy in him? Can we find a joy in Christ that can enable us as well to despise any shame, to answer the call, to endure any path? Yes, because we have the greatest of joys in him. The joy that we have in Christ is the joy that we have from his work of reconciliation. Remember, Paul in his hymn here, he talks about the beauty and the centrality and the supremacy of Jesus Christ over all things and and what God has done through his, uh, his son, Jesus Christ. But what was the point of it all? What's the point of it all? He says in 20, for God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself whether things on heaven things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross Jesus's calling his sacrifice on the cross was in order to accomplish this Paul says two things number one peace where there was once hostility between us and God or between you and God where there was once hostility because you stood underneath the the judgment and the condemnation for your sin where there was once hostility by Jesus's work there can be made peace. There can be a transformation in the nature of that relationship there, where there can be made peace. But not just there's peace, because it's possible for, you know, two nations can go to war, and then they can make peace in a treaty and go their separate ways. But this is not the kind of peace that God offers us in Jesus Christ. He says that by his blood, he makes peace, right? He has, he has paid the debt for our iniquity and sin, but then even greater. He says he reconciles us to himself. The first time that that piece of the gospel really, I, that I finally learned it, that I realized that God wasn't satisfied to just wash away my sin, but that the, he then wanted to reconcile me to himself. It, it, it blew me away and it touched my heart. And it meant so much to me, so much to me because of this, because think about what it means. It means that he wants a relationship with you. It means that he didn't just save you because he's a nice God. He didn't just do away with your sin because he believes in second chances. He didn't just send his son to die for you so you might go to heaven because anybody made him to, but for this reason, because he wanted to be reconciled to you. He wanted a relationship with you. With you. And how beautiful is that? How mind-blowing is that if you're like me and and, and you know the depth of your sin, the darkness of your depravity, how, how weak you are, how often you fall, how often you stray, how often you forget, all these things, how Christ saw them all and the cross that would be required of him, but for the joy that was set before him, which was to be reconciled with you, to have you in relationship, to, to, uh, to, be in the, to give himself to you for the amount of joy that he had in that thought, it was worth it. And he was enabled to endure. How incredible is that? That it brought so much joy to the heart of Christ. The thought of being reconciled to you, having you in relationship with him, despite all of your sin, despite all of your weakness, that that was enough joy to make him be able to endure the cross. What kind of joy do we get from Christ? We get the joy of being reconciled to him. 
We get the joy of me knowing on my, on my worst day, on my most discouraged day, on, on the day where no one else likes me. Christ, still on that day, he saw that day, and it was still so worth it to him to be reconciled to me on that day that it was enough to, for him to endure the cross. You see what kind of joy is available to you in the gospel? Do you see what kind of joy is available to you in Christmas? The most wonderful gift of all, the gift of getting God. Christmas brings new joy to your life. That's our last point. Christmas brings new joy to your life. So what do you do with that joy? Savor it. Savor the joy of the gospel. Savor that joy of the gospel. You know, earlier I talked about how Christmas for us means nostalgia, and it means comfort, and it means sweet things, right? It means sentimentality. It means all these things to us, but for Christ it meant something very different. Here's the thing. I'm not trying to get Christmas to start meaning discomfort or pain or, or sacrifice to you. Because here's the thing. It's a gift for us that Christmas means all those beautiful warming, comforting, sweet things. We get to have Christmas mean those things to us because it meant something very Jesus, to, something very different to Jesus. And do you know what I think Jesus wants you to do with it? I, want you, I think he wants you to savor it. I think he wants you to love it. I think he wants you to take joy in it. So in the season of joy, friends, what is this message and what, what does Christ's work call you, call you to? Savor that joy. Love that joy. Soak it up and soak it up remembering not just for the food, not just the relationship, but oh, this is the gift of God. How, however sweet this meal is that I'm eating, the love of God for me is even sweeter. Right? However much joy I'm getting from these relationships that I'm experiencing in my church or in my family get-togethers at my office Christmas parties, however much laughter there is and however much joy I get out of it, oh, the joy of God, oh, the joy of Christ. Oh, it's even better. It's, it, it's far superior even to all of this. The, 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 the warmth that the nostalgia can bring to you. Remember, oh, the comfort of being in the arms of God because of Jesus' work for me, rather than being out in my sin, is even warmer and com more comforting than this. Friends, savor the joy that is offered to you in the gospel today and throughout this season and, and, and rejoice in it and celebrate it as much as you can because I think that's what Jesus wants you to do with it. Savor that joy of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we We recognize that it is sometimes really, really difficult to accept and believe that a relationship with us meant so much to you that you would go to the lengths of coming down on this earth in the form of a man, taking on flesh, that you would live a life of service, of sacrifice, of difficulty, and that it would end in a criminal's cross, that it would end with the curse of being hung on a tree. But Lord, all these things were worth it to you in order to have us. That you saw it as bringing ultimate glory to yourself to redeem and reconcile and adopt a rebellious people. 
Lord, it is, I find that our hearts sometimes react and try to remove because we are hesitant to accept that message and all that it means. Lord, in your Holy Spirit, would you come close to each one of us this morning? Would you come near our hearts that so often try to pull away and that you might um, welcome us into the warmth of your embrace? Don't let any of us run away from that experience today. Don't let any of us run away from the joy that is offered to us, the adventure that we are invited into, into what it means to our, for our lives to be held together in Christ. Father, but have your spirit draw close. Let us leave today with our hearts just overflowing with joy, the joy that comes from knowing that he who created all things and all things are before him and are for him, that though he had all things, it would not be enough until he also had us. And so we pray these things in the name of that Lord, in the name of that Savior, Jesus.